<laughs> I don't know if you guys can hear it, but they're applauding in the room. I feel very, very honored and a little shy. So like, let me go. And I'm just kidding. I have a word to give. <laughs> uh, I am so excited that you decided to join us here on our Elma City Vineyard live stream. If you are new here, like Josh said, I am your local priestess, your neighborhood pastor, your good news and social engagement Minister, that's me, Denika Washington. <laughs> no, <laughs> all jokes aside, we're super excited that you decided to join us for this church service. We have it every single Sunday, and we are happy that you are here, because guess what? You could be anywhere else. Now, before I get too carried away, I want to make sure that as I step up to this holy place, this uh, sacred podium, that I take this last Sunday of Black History Month to uh, just acknowledge the giants whose shoulders I'm standing on, the giants who have set me up for success, who have placed me where I am as a black woman who preaches. I wanna shout out Sojourner Truth, Martin Luther King Jr., John Jasper, the Reverend Jarena Lee, and my once advisor and mentor, Dr. Danielle McCray. Their lives of proclamation and service to the people of God are inspiring, convicting, and more than worth mentioning, and I am grateful. Yeah. Happy Black History Month, y'all. <laughs> So let's get to it. <laughs> we, got, we got some things that we have to actually talk about today. We are in a series that's really super dope. Uh, we're journeying through a very, very powerful Lenten series called Drawing Near, the Blood That Opens a New and Living Way. Um, and it, we designed this series to discover how Jesus' great sacrifice actually summons us to a life of intimacy with God. We are learning that coming close to God requires everything from Jesus, and it calls us to do sacrifice sacrifices of our own. We will be learning that God's great redemptive plan for humanity influences our lives in the here and the now and has practical ramifications. Make sure that you put a bookmark there. Practical ramifications. See, last Sunday, Josh spoke powerfully about what it means to accept the gift of Jesus' bodily sacrifice, which is not a story of vengeance, but in fact, a story of transformation and restoration. That was so good to me. I don't know how you felt about that at home, but that was so good to me. I was in my living room like, mm, honey. But Josh did all of the sticky theological work for the blood, no pun intended. Um, so if you're confused about why we're centering here on Jesus' sacrifice, go back and check out last week's live stream. We've discovered how uh, truly during this season, during this time, during this Lenten, uh, uh, drawing close, drawing near, that we are being drawn into an intimate and loving relationship with a good God. This week, we're talking about how through Jesus's bodily sacrifice, we are drawn towards each other. Now, don't turn off your, com your computer or your TV yet. Please, I know relationships are hard, but just give me a little bit of time to just unfold this for you. Today, we're going to continue in the book of Hebrews like we did last week, but instead we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Now, if you do not have a Bible, the uh, scripture will be on the screen. I will be reading from the New King James Version because the King James Version cast out demons. I don't care what you say. I don't care what they say. I don't care. <laughs> Let us read the scripture. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful and let us consider, let us consider one another 
to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. First, I think it's important to name that the author of the book of Hebrews was writing to a group of folks who were experiencing the tribulation of a lifetime. During the time when this was written, the Hebrews were experiencing anxiety and trouble all around them. They were being pressed in. These early Christians were facing persecution, prejudice, and imprisonment, all because of their belief in the bodily sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Moreover, once the trial started to happen, not only were they being persecuted, but they found that other Hebrew folks started to walk away from following Jesus and giving the faith up altogether. Following Jesus during that time, during the Hebrews' time, had become increasingly difficult. Their people were deeply discouraged and unsettled by what was happening all around them, and so they abandoned their faith and they walked away. Surprisingly, even in the midst of all of this calamity, this imprisonment and prejudice and persecution, this, author's, this author of the book of Hebrew insists that these people not forsake the assembling of themselves. He declares that they should still be meeting together in what must have been an incredibly scary and sad time. Now, what on earth would make this guy, girl, whoever, advise these people to continue to gather? Shouldn't they be directed to lay low and out of the way until the persecution order passes? Wouldn't being together cause them to, to, to be more of a target for their oppressors? I think that there actually might be a probable cause for what seems like negligence from our writer today. I'm convinced that the Hebrews author was accounting for something that is not actually written in this passage. This author didn't write it, but I think that they knew that life can be hard. And more than that, life can be hard when you feel like you're experiencing hardships by yourself. I doubt that the Hebrew author considered that a black woman named Daniqua would be teaching this passage to a multi-ethnic congregation in the middle of New Haven, Connecticut. But in the midst of trying to encourage a scared and weary, uh, persecuted congregation of folks in the first century, this author stepped right into our 2021 lives. This author walked right into our living rooms, is sitting on our porches, and as preachers back home in Virginia say, they are sit he's sitting right in the pew with us. Many of us can feel the heat from this text because we're all probably feeling the hardships of our individual lives. Hardships we can face, they can truly vary in, in, in different degrees, everything from dead-end jobs, strained relationships, emotional heaviness, financial troubles, fighting addiction, feeling purposeless, feeling overwhelmed with responsibilities, family hardships, guilt and shame, impending difficult decisions, heartache. The list goes on and on and on the way that life can hit us hard and fast. And guess what? We try to face all of this by ourselves. 
And oftentimes, these hardships result in us showing up to life detached, in denial, angry and frustrated, numb, sleepless, depressed, anxious, or complacent. Some of us over-function, some of us under-function. And, and y'all, I don't know if you noticed, but I actually haven't mentioned what's going on out there. With political warfare, inequality, global warming, housing and health injustice, and this very, very present pandemic, let's get real. Life is hard. And, and, and I don't mean to put a damper on today's party, but I want to paint a picture of the unease that life can leave on each of us in its unpredictable and seemingly unfair ways of happening. And, and, and there's an added level of despair on it all when we feel as if there is no one who can experience it with us and support us. There's an added anxiety when it feels like no one can understand, when we are left without help or without encouragement, or when we are to experience it without any way of being out of it. The author of this text understood that life is hard and even more difficult when we have to face it alone. We are not facing the same martyrdom as it was for the Hebrews, but we are certainly hard-pressed. We feel the effects of life. But as we learned last week, in the midst of all of our sadness, darkness, and hardship, Jesus shed his blood to save us from it. The great scandal of Jesus' death on the cross gives us hope that is alive and well. Jesus' selfless act of salvation, it, it invites us into a new and living way, a way of possibility and expectation in the midst of life's unpredictability. Jesus' selfless act encourages us to flourish through life's misgivings and disappointments. Moreover, moreover, our scripture today says that as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, we should also have new and heightened expectations for what our church community is and can be. Because of Jesus' bloodshed, we can expect more from one another and should ask more of ourselves. Because of Jesus' bloodshed, we can go beyond the veil with, with God and also with one another. And so as we venture into the scripture more deeply, I want to make sure that we can hear from the Lord as I'm speaking. And so would you please bow your head with me in prayer? Oh, gracious and eternal God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you because you are here and you are present with us. God, you do not call yourself Emmanuel, God, with us for no reason. You call us, God, you call yourself Emmanuel, God, with us to show us that we could also be with one another. Lord, as these words are spoken over our community, God, I speak deliverance. I speak that our chains will be broken, that we will be changed and transformed in Jesus' name. God, I ask right now in the name of Jesus for this new and living way to not only make sense, but to be a convicting reality for us. God, you do what you always do. You never fail your people. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. So let's go back to our text. Again, in the text, it says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
See, I don't think that this is by chance. At the pinnacle of this text, we are invited into, an, into exhortation in community. In the main encouragement of this passage, we are being called to a gathered place around the foot of Jesus's cross. Our collective belief in what Christ has done for us is what draws us all in near. Although faith moves through our bodies differently because some of us are of different heritage and ethnicity, we still have a common declaration of faith in what Jesus' sacrifice actually did. And we have come to the same vulnerable place. We have to draw near to the vulnerable place of grabbing hold of confidence that Jesus is the one who came to save us and will eventually return for us. We have to draw near to the vulnerable place of disposing hope that depends on us and taking up hope that instead is dependent on the faithfulness of the God who has promised it. We have to draw near to the vulnerable place of being rooted in the already but not yet. We have to draw near to the vulnerable place of having expectation for a preferred future that none of us has mastered and that we do not own. We, in fact, have to share the tension of unwaveringly holding on to a future that none of us is an expert in. We all wait for what is to come. We all wait for who is to come. And we're all guided by the same loving God. Gathered at this place of vulnerability, we find ourselves to be soft, moldable, yielding, ready to be formed and discipled and open-handed even. We, we, we are supposed to live in the tension together, the tension of being unacquainted with our future, but nonetheless being anchored by God's faithfulness to us, unwaveringly holding on to the hope. In that light, life can really put some messed up stuff into you wanting to be vulnerable. Life can really feel hostile to a Christian's vulnerable orientation to it. Life and its trials can feel constantly in opposition to a position of open-handedness, being yielded and wanting to be molded. And for that reason, when the waves of a hard life and the winds of trials come and find us, we feel as though we have to know what is to come and we have to master it so that when trouble arrives, we aren't completely destroyed. And in light of this, in light of a hard life, in light of trying to be a vulnerable Christian, in light of putting it all in the same pot, it becomes increasingly hard to do good as a believer and hold on to hope when you don't feel good and things look hopeless. But the Hebrew author gives a simple antidote to this. They present us with a remedy to the gap between trying to do good and not feeling so good doing it. In, 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 in verse 24, it says, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. This can seem simple. We look at the word consider and it's like, oh, I have plenty of people that I consider. You could probably look at your inbox and see people that you checked up on or maybe even took walks with this week. But the word consider here 
in its original Greek actually calls for a much deeper interpersonal connection than a mere check-in. Consider here can be translated to consider carefully, consider attentively, to be deeply involved with, to understand, to be concerned with, faithfully present to. Now with this blossomed definition, this rolled out definition, the author's words get a lot heavier than a, a touch and go conversation or a text message or a mere hour walk with somebody. Consideration here is not about simply performing presence, but a commitment and devotion to one another's life. In fact, presence is the bare minimum that we can offer one another. Presence actually is the prerequisite. You need presence in, even to, in order to even get into the class. In this life, it is not enough just to be, to, to, to dispassionately exist with each other. See, we are probably given this direction to consider one another because consideration doesn't always come naturally to us. And it gets even more difficult to consider one, one another when we have our own trials and lives to worry about. When we are caught in the whirlwind of our own issues, our own safety, our own dealings, it is hard to look up from all of what's going on inside of us and see other people. My concern is that many of us are getting beat up by life and we feel alone. And we might grow accustomed to low expectations for how this community can show up for us and how we can show up for it. My concern is that we are occupied with keeping a degree of professionalism where we engage with one another in poised and polished ways, which place more emphasis on our competence than on our community. My concern is that we will never go beyond or go deeper than the exterior of ourselves that we will stay superficial for so long that we will think that it is the only way to exist as a church community. I wanna share a story with you folks. And many of you probably know bits and pieces of what I'm about to say. Almost a year ago, a number of us went to protest on the steps of the police station here in New Haven, Connecticut. If you were around during that time, you probably remember Pastor Josh was here at uh, uh, the church and was reporting live as we texted him updates for prayer. And he would drive his, he would ride his bike back and forth to check on people. The demonstration was for the defunding of the New Haven police to pour funds into deeply underfunded areas here in New Haven, which include housing and public, public education. All of these things really suffer here in our city. During this protest with the encouragement and backing of a dear friend of mine who also is a part of our congregation, Unsun Cho, I decided to speak to the crowd of people and encourage the folks that were there. I simply wanted to show the protesters that ministers and believers were there with them and wanted to side with them and were deeply concerned for them and that everything in our nation didn't pass us by because we believed in Jesus Christ. My speaking then at this protest led to me being invited to some healing conversations between activists and clergy members. And that was really wild because 
unbeknownst to me, I didn't have any clue that the relationships between clergy and activists in this city weren't so great. And so stepping into these conversations, I only knew that Jesus needed to be there. Those conversations then led to a wonderful friendship with one of the activists, Carrie Ellington, who, who I am now partnering with to empower black women who need rental assistance. I'm certainly giving you an abridged version of this story because if I drew it out, then it would be this whole time. But over the last year, the justice work that I was doing became quite busy, emotionally tiring, and I needed help. I realized that I was going to continue to work for social good and I actually needed support. I could no longer persist with conversations that actually on, only ended up in niceties. I needed backing from people who understood why I was doing this. I needed people who were going to ensure me of God's promise when I got discouraged by looking at all the folks who actually need our help. The busyness of my life made community a dire need of mine. I got tired of scraping the barrel for encouragement and, 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 and presence and for exhortation. There's a pastor who often talks about being too busy not to pray. I was slowly realizing that I was too busy not to have deep and loving community. I needed folks who were concerned for me and that would provoke me in love and continue to stir me towards good works. I needed people who would get down in the dirt with me and cry with me when I needed to cry and sit with me when I got tired. I needed a community that would come along and ride out the moments of beauty in this justice work, but who would also fight alongside me. I was too busy not to have deep and loving community. See, ECV, we are an enriched community of people with all sorts of backings, careers, and purposes. And I oftentimes joke with my mom, she's probably watching, um, that I've met folks at our church who are doing all sorts of things, some things that I've never even heard of. It is a true gift to have believers in all of these places, in these arenas, all at the same community. However, ECV... Our diversity and perpetual busyness cannot be what drives us away from deeper connections here. Our professionalism and competence cannot be the driving force for our relationships here. We will become casualties of our casual attitude towards what this place is supposed to be to us. We will experience great loss in our hesitation to press into relationships with one another in this church. This is not a casual thing. Relationship, connection, and community can no longer be cliches for us. Because of Jesus' great sacrifice, he has torn the veil. And we can boldly approach the heavenly throne of God. So often we take the bodily sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we continue to let it loom over our heads as a theoretical complex rather than a practical need. In our newfound boldness through Jesus's main act, we are also being invited to come beyond the veil with one another. In verse 25 of our passage of today, it goes as far to say that we should be exhorting one another. This is not an everyday level of engagement or encouragement. 
Don't get me wrong, when, when, when we do uh, cool things at church and people hear you teach and preach and, 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 you, and you have these uh, uh, Zoom calls and people are feeling good, about it, feeling good about it and you get text messages and emails where people are like, oh, that was so good. That feels great. That's amazing. That's awesome. But it's not enough. It is not enough. Exhortation is communication that comes out of the nearness to one another. Exhortation is the permission of closeness and trust to be convinced, convicted, and encouraged by one another. Exhortation is an invitation into the messiness and the beauty of one another's lives. This level of encouragement, this exhortation level of encouragement, it assures us, it, it allows us to assure one another of God's grace and promises. It allows us to help each other to escape cycles of sin. It helps us to encourage one another beyond coping and merely surviving. It presents us with the opportunity to give each other alternate ways of living. It allows us to tell each other when we're wrong, nonviolently, of course, and without judgment. <laughs> Somebody just snorted. We have to really learn how to walk alongside one another and open ourselves to being helped, exhorted, and supported. In our newfound boldness, in the communal position of vulnerability that we're all in because we don't know what's to come, but we know that we have hope in it, we have to welcome the deep discomfort of the messy integration of our lives. Let's call it an entanglement, if you'd like. With our new and living way, we can trust that our nearness comes as a result of being empowered and sanctified, sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this is controversial, what I'm about to say, but it's real. The mess that we are and the mess that others are is all held accountable and covered by the mercy and saving grace of God. If we are to draw close to each other, we have to start really believing that. That if we go into each other's nonsense, that we won't be shattered and broken and destroyed. We might be hurt. We might have disagreements and frustrations. We might even fight. And I'm an Enneagram 8, so I, you know, I'm okay with that. But even in that difficulty, even in those places that are ugly and that are dark, that is how we draw near to each other. That is how we effectively become the sort of community that we need in order to send everyone out. I have one more story for you and then I'll leave you alone. This past week, our Asian and Asian American brothers and sisters started a series that they're calling Listening In and Listening Nearby. During this time, we were beautifully gifted to be bystanders in a conversation between two of our sisters, Caritha and Marjorie. One of the questions they explored together considered why there seemed to be such difficulty with our church and getting plugged into serving our city. See, for a moment, there was a large and, and telling pregnant pause between Caritha and Marjorie once this question was asked. It was like, hey, serving the city in ECV.
cause. It was telling. It unveiled something about our church. That there's a gap between us doing good and feeling good about it. There's a gap between our experience of doing church and actually being equipped to do it out there. After this pause, Mondry stated her heart for the question. She answered and said, there comes a time when service cannot be up to programming, but it has to be who we are. We sing songs and we worship and we say that we're primed to serve here in our city. We say that we're committed to enriching this place and being enriched by it. And we see out, out these doors that New Haven actually needs service. We look at the calamity. We look, we look at the, the, the folks on the streets who need food and housing and clothing. We look at the schools that are going through it as far as teachers, shortages everywhere. But we don't show up. There, there's a gap there. What I'm here to explain to you what I'm here to express to you and, and, and even confess in my own self that I didn't even realize until I, I came up against it, uh, until I started to be so busy that I needed a loving and, 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 and exhortating community is that until we get healthy here, we can't extend out there. We can't do the heart-wrenching work of going into places that need family, where people are orphaned and, and widowed and their, their, their heartaches and their grieving until we become a family here. We cannot become mothers to the motherless. We cannot become friend to the friendless until we learn how to do it here. And, and I could force programming. I could, as a good news and social engagement pastor, I could force a program of some sort. I've done it. I'm not even going to lie. I won't even hold you. <laughs> I've done it over and over and over again. And I've complained. I'm not even going to lie. I've complained. I even expressed to the staff my heartache, feeling hurt because I'm like, there's a lot going on and nobody's like trying to help us. <laughs> And the staff received me with open arms, asking me how I felt hurt, wanting to know how they'd hurt me, and wanting to see how we could come together and develop the deep connection that we needed in order to get the work done, in order to be stirred up towards love and good works. I think it, it, it's, it's such a blessing that, uh, that, that, I forgot your name, sorry, pa uh, Pastor Josh. <laughs> I think it's such, a, uh, <laughs> it's such a blessing that Josh led us through a, uh, a blessed season of, of, of searching through what nonviolence can look like. It was a blessed, a blessed, blessed, blessed series. And if you haven't heard it, please go back and watch it. But many of us, we, we, you know, stopped and we were ready to say, hey, you know, we don't want negative peace. Neg no, negative peace. But we become perpetrators of negative peace here in our own household when we think that we are connected merely because there isn't any conflict. 
We become enactors of what it means to exist in a place that plays peaceful, that, that, that performs peace, but actually exists as a, a barrier to what it means to actually be a part of the well-being of the city. And, and, and even if we wanted to be a part of conflict resolution, if we don't get into each other's nonsense and, and messiness and beauty, we'll never know what it looks like to encounter someone's conflict. And I'll tell you one thing, that folks who actually are living on the streets, who, who have uh, deep and dire needs, who need food and shelter, if a place doesn't look like home to them, they can tell very, very, very easily. We can't fool the folks out there. We can't fool people who need justice. We can't fool them into thinking that we have what we need. We have to actually hold it. We have to actually be people who are willing to be conflict resolutionists. We talk a big talk about wanting to bring folks into our church and share our community, but we haven't created a deeply engaged community for them to enter into. We talk big talk about wanting to enact justice and live out mercy, but we cannot enact the ministry of mercies out there until we have worked out the mercy with the people in here. The, the revelation, the deep conviction here is that we have to become committed to the good in one another. We have to be committed and devoted and, and feel equipped in the good in one another. And once we are committed and devoted to what's good here in our church community, in our church family, then we can reach out there and be committed to the good in our city. There's a blessing in this message for each of us. There is a teaching in this message for each of us. There's some conviction and some heart-wrenching things. But I, I, I can't apologize for it because I think that this is what's going to take us to the next place that we need to go as a church community that is committed to this place, that actually does what we say we want to do, where we stop having these gaps of an integrity and we actually show up as the people we want to be here in this place. So I have a couple of invitations for us today. The first one is that um, for some of us, trusting that people will show up for us is, 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 is really difficult for us. It, it feels like a, a huge feat because of things that we've experienced in our past or maybe even in our present. This can create and make it difficult for us to draw near to one another. I'd like to invite us to think about how these barriers to trust developed for us. Where did they come from? What was their orientation? Where is God in them? What are some of the ways that you would like to trust your church family? What might inhibit that for you? What does scripture say about mutual affection and being with one another? That phrase, being with one another, specifically, you could you version, Google that, whatever, and it'll come up in the Bible so many times. Galatians 6 and 2, carry one another's burdens. Romans 13 and 8, love one another. 
There are constant reminders and promises and directions to what it means to be in community with one another, in an effective community with one another. Invite the Holy Spirit to show you possibilities of interpersonal renewal. The second invitation is there are others of us who in our hearts, uh, we uh, during this talk felt pulled on by the idea of going beyond connections bound by competency or niceties. How is God calling you to be bold and ask for deeper connections with the people you are doing church life with? Ask God to show you some ways and some people you can start to have this conversation with and have these conversations during the Lenten season. Be bold, be open, be gracious, feel affirmed by what God has already done for us, what Jesus has already done on the cross. This one specifically, I feel the Holy Spirit on, and I, I don't, if, it, if you felt it in your heart, do not let it miss you. If you feel it pressing you, if you feel it in your head and your body right now, tightness because you need and you know, you even see flashes of the people that you should be talking to, do it. And my final invitation is for all of us. I believe there is an invitation to confession, confession of our belief. In the very beginning of this passage, it said, hold fast to the confession and the promises of Jesus Christ. In order to create a culture of deep relationship and exhortation, we must first hold fast to our de declaration of Jesus' sacrifice. This week, this week, y'all, in prayer and conversation with others, discuss what it means for you to be invited into freedom, openness, and confidence in relationship to others because of what Jesus has done. Y'all, I feel blessed because of Jesus's great sacrifice. And I'll be honest with you that I didn't think I needed deep connections from a church family in order to get the job done. I'm the sort of person where I'm just like, I'll get it done with or without y'all. I could, but it would hurt. The truth is in the new and living way of Jesus Christ, we are invited into a life that doesn't feel like it's dragging us through it. We are invited into a life that holds us by the community of people that we're in, by the belief that we have, and by the wonderful good works that we do. Let, us pray. Let me pray for us. Whew, God. Like I said before, you are faithful and you do not fail your people. You are a good God deserving of all the worship and the praise and the glory and the honor. God, I bless your name. I exalt you because you are worthy to be praised in the here and the now for what you did then. God, I thank you that your sacrifice for us goes from generation to generation, God. And Lord, may this generation of ECV folks actually start the newness of what it means to deeply engage with one another, to get into each other's junk and actually find out that it's okay. And it's okay to be present with each other, to go into the muckiness, to, to, to uh, try to come uh, and make boundaries for ourselves, God. And Lord, I ask for a wild thing, that this happens across the multi-ethnic lines that we start to see strange relationships that remind us that you really do exist. 
Lord, we bless your name because you are doing it. It's already done. And we believe you for what you did. In Jesus' mighty name, we do pray. Amen.